Kick is live. It is Sunday night, June 27th, the year of our Lord, 2021. Jam-packed as jam-packed can be for June or really for any month, at least uh, until we get to September. And then it just kicks up into a whole nother gear. The regulars know what it's like. Those of you who are new will soon know what it's like. But man, speaking of all of you, you just continue to open doors. I know I keep saying this stuff and you look around and you say, show looks the same. You'll see. In due time, you'll see things don't always move at just a snap, snap, snap pace around here, but they do move, and you will soon see a lot of the fruits of a lot of the work that's been happening behind the scenes, and you guys have been chief among those doing that work. So thank you. All the traction we're getting, thank you. Jam-packed show, as I said tonight. There is something I get in my inbox a few times a week that I just felt like tonight was the right time to address, and it's about Nick Saban. I'll circle back to it in a second. Also, the Arizona State situation, I guess we could call it. It's an investigation. We can at least go that far. Got some new details. Now, they may not seem as juicy as the other details on the surface, but there are three letters that have entered the equation now, not FBI, but almost as bad if you're an athletic department, that have entered the equation that we need to discuss, you and I right here tonight. Also, been waiting to do this segment. Most dangerous teams in college football. We have a specific definition, so we're not going to name Alabama or Ohio State, but the most dangerous teams, maybe the ones, for example, that aren't going to enter the season top six or top seven, but they could either make the playoff or they could wreck multiple teams' playoff dreams. There are several of them. I think we have, no, I think we have four or five. And so we're going to go pretty deep on some teams tonight that uh, you may not have on your radar, but you need to have on your radar. Also, I asked if you wanted it to end the show last week, and you said, yes, we do want it. So we're going to end the show tonight with Pac-12 swing games. Also, uh, and I want to do this, I wanted to do this at the front so everyone heard it. If you tuned in to our Thursday night show, you heard me read a brief message from a listener and a viewer named Tim. And he was a cancer, well, he was dealing with cancer. He has not recovered yet. And so I, I figured what was going to happen, and it ended up happening. We had a flood of very similar emails and messages that came in of people who listened to the show, going through all different sorts of struggles, some of them just unimaginable. So I would just say this. We always foster a community environment here. That's what the show is always meant to be. It's what it always will be as long as I get to decide how we run things. I would suggest any of you who have those prayer lists out there, just put some unspokens on there. And when you pray for the unspokens, there are a lot of the folks that you watch this show right alongside, even though you don't know you're watching alongside those folks. Um, a lot of people dealing with a lot of serious stuff. So just I wanted to say that thank you for the correspondence. I read every single one of them. I answer as many as I can. Feel free to keep those coming. At Late Kick Josh, Instagram, Twitter, encourage you to follow. You can reach out that way too. We are dedicating this show to NC State baseball tonight. If you know, you know. Having said that, let's talk college football. What is the challenge remaining for Nick Saban? A lot of people ask this. In the inbox, whether it be email or Twitter or Instagram, I inevitably have anywhere from five to ten people per week say something that I think it's time to address. And that something is some version of Nick Saban doesn't have anything left to accomplish. He's won so many national championships. He's number one by a country mile. If I were him, I'd retire. Well, I can guarantee you out of few assurances in life, one of them is probably that you won't find yourself in a position to say, hey, here I am right where Nick Saban was. I get why people say this. I know I joke a lot. I get why people say it. This is a very hard mentality to grasp. The mentality of the one percenter, it's extremely hard to grasp. It's extremely hard to even be exposed to it, to be around it. There are not many people. The law of mathematics, I had Colin run the numbers, and he told me 
that if you are dealing with a one percenter, that means the other 99% are not like that 1%. Colin, that did work out. We, we showed our work. So we did the numbers. And yes, it's really hard to find these people. There aren't many Nick Sabans walking the face of the earth in football, in government, in uh, the food service industry, wherever you reside. You don't find many of them. How do you understand this mentality? Well, if you've ever been around it, you know. Those of you who are fortunate enough to be around those ultra-elite mentally, those ultra-elite 1% types, if you've ever been around it, it totally changes your perception on the world because you watch someone who's operating on a total different plane than you are intellectually, and you never even realized it existed. Then once your eyes are open to it, then maybe you start to adjust some things in your life. Because I do believe it can be a learned behavior. I do believe it can be a learned mentality. I don't think everyone's just born either that way or they're never going to be that way. But if you see it up close, boy, it makes you rethink some things. Goals, that's not it. I think a lot of folks wrongfully look at Nick Saban and say, well, he's got a bunch of championships, and he's sent a bunch of kids to the first round, and he's won so much, and he's the all-time this, and he's the all-time that. You're looking at his bio. If you're watching on YouTube, the guy's got several more first-round draft picks at this point than he does total losses at Alabama, 106 to be exact. And you look at the championships, six and counting, and you wonder, well, when is enough enough? How many, how many more titles can one win? Well, that only makes sense if that's his goal. That's not the goal. And this is where the detachment, this is where the disconnect, I think, comes in from a normal person thinking about an abnormal person, from a 99%er thinking about a 1%er. You look at Nick Saban, if you're a 99%er, and you say, he doesn't have anything left to accomplish. He would listen to you say that and laugh at how stupid that sounds to him. I'm not calling you stupid. I'm saying if you said that to him, he would laugh at it because the idea of nothing left to accomplish would be stupid. But it all comes down to this thing that I think a lot of people want to believe they've bought into, but really when it comes down to it, they haven't. And I'm talking about your personal life or your professional life, whatever the case may be, because it's boring to talk about. It's so fun to talk about goals. It's so fun to talk about how you're goal-oriented. It is far less fun to talk about the process, there's that P word, that it takes to go about achieving said goals. And the only real difference between like the way a Nick Saban thinks and the way someone who's result-oriented thinks is he's not result-oriented. He is process-oriented. And so a lot of that stuff that he says that maybe you mistakenly identify as coach-speak is not coach speak. It's an actual philosophy. It's an actual way of life. And the only goal is to maximize one's potential. If you ever, again, get to be around it, you quickly realize, I could just as soon be talking to the head coach at Alabama as I could be talking to the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. These people sound different. They think different. They live different. It's not one compartment of their life and then everywhere else they're just normal. There's not normalcy anywhere. They don't appear normal. If you're hanging out with them on the lake, if you're in the office with them, if you go to church with them, they think differently. If you're at lunch with them, they think differently. And he's just one of those folks, one of the very few. But that whole result-oriented deal, there's beauty in the simplicity. Because if you're focused like he is on that whole process thing and your only goal is to maximize your results, when have you ever arrived? How do you know he's not capable of winning 27 national championships? You know, he probably walks around and thinks, if we're not perfect, then we haven't accomplished anything. If perfection is the goal, you know, if maximizing my potential as a coach and maximizing this program's potential, if that's the real goal, 
You're telling me about the championships we've won. One, two, three, four, five, six of them at Alabama. Well, also, if you're looking at the screen right now, there's one, two, three, four, five, there's seven years where they hadn't won one. What in the world happened there? What, what may happen this next year? And so my point is, is it totally unrealistic to win a title every year and to win every game? Yeah. But therein lies the beauty. That means you've never arrived. And here's the other really, really fun aspect of this. This is where the area is that I think Bama and Saban have totally detached themselves from the pack is the fuel source. What really throws people for a loop when they watch Alabama, when they watch Saban, is when they win, they operate with the same machine-like efficiency the following season as they did when they were on what you would call the climb. I think the detachment is you assume when they win a championship, they have completed their climb. They've arrived at the summit. Maybe that individual team has. But if it's an overall vision, if it's an overall process, then you hear those stories about him chewing out staff the next morning. Let's get out on the recruiting trail. Let's make sure we don't let our foot off the gas. That doesn't make sense to a normal person. Your whole goal is to win a championship, right? No, that ain't the goal. I've heard him before, both in public and in private, talk about his best teams and him talk about the best teams he's ever coached having one thing in common, and that is none of them made winning a championship the core goal of the program or the organization. It was just be committed to a process, and the process is tied into maximizing your potential. You know what just hit me? You can tell because my eyes got so big I didn't plan on talking about this. There's a former Alabama All-American, as it were, that perfectly encapsulates what the process is all about. Process over goal. Forrest Gump was his name, and he was serving in Vietnam. And boy, they were where they weren't supposed to be. Lieutenant Dan's called in air support. He's over by the river somewhere. And so it's time to get out of there. And all Forrest Gump did was what Jenny, who I have strong thoughts about as well back home, told him to do. And that is run. And so he ran. And he didn't look to his left. And he didn't look to his right. And he didn't look behind him to just make sure he was ahead of everyone else. He just ran. And then he kept running, kept running, kept running. And then after a while, he slowed down. And he looked around, and he was totally alone. Oh, how in the world did that happen? Well, it happened because all he was focused on was the task at hand, and that was running. And it took care of him to the point he was so efficient in the process that that Alabama All-American kick returner turned around and went and rescued Bubba. Well, as much as he could rescue Bubba. Good for Forrest Gump. I'm not going to give you the soundbite of comparing the head coach at Alabama to that fictitious Alabama All-American because I know good and well where that soundbite would go and it would be no good for me. However, in a much more real sense, that's what it comes down to. The rarest skill, though, is not to think like that. I mean, it's rare to think like that, but you can find some folks. At the highest point of any walk of life, you find folks who think like that. The cream naturally rises to the top. It doesn't have to do with talent. It's got to do with mentality and grit. That's really what it's got to do with. But the rarest skill set, I want you to think about how profound this is and what you're witnessing and why it's really great. He doesn't just think like that. He gets 18 and 19-year-olds to think like that. He gets former failed head coaches to come in and rehab themselves, all while adapting themselves mentally to that process-oriented approach over a result-oriented approach. And those people look around at these celebratory endings that happen more times than not at the end of an Alabama season, and they say, wow, we didn't talk about winning a title a single time this year, and all of a sudden, it's just here we are. There's confetti raining down all over the place. We ended up winning ourselves a title. That's kind of the way it can happen. But I'll tell you this. Hey, by the way, Colin, so we're going to cut this out of the video when we get done with it. The air conditioner's on the fritz over here. So if you come in here and do your magic and just bang on the wall the way you normally do before the show, that would be great. All right, now here's where we're going to edit the video. So only the live viewers will end up seeing this.
The thing about the 10 percenters and really the 30 percenters, you know, let's just say it this way. The thing about one percenters is 30% of dudes you hang around think they're the one percenter. They'll say things like, oh, bro, I hate to lose. I hate to lose more than I love to win. And they have like a dolphin tattoo on their calf. Buddy, you stay losing. You don't hate to lose. You just, it sounds cool. And all the successful people you watch on TV say it, so I'm going to say it. No, they're the 1% of the 1%. You don't just get to expand it because well, no one else is around here. Maybe I won't expose myself as a fraud when I say it. But he is. He being Nick Saban is one of the one percenters. So when you look at his situation in the Alabama situation and you hope to yourself, maybe he'll just get tired of winning. You cannot, you cannot finish if you've never viewed yourself as having arrived. You cannot be done with the mission if you've really never arrived. That's the way they look at it. So eventually he will retire, obviously. I just don't think it's going to come out of boredom. And it's certainly not going to come because he looks around and says, you know, I think we've gotten the job done here. I think, um, yeah, I think we're good, and I think we won. And the last thing, and some of you don't believe this, but it's, it's true. You don't make it this far in this profession without having a service-based approach to your profession. There is an endless supply of kids coming off the high school conveyor belt every year whose lives you can change. And that's really, once you get up in age a little bit and you have a little experience about yourself, you understand the value of giving back as opposed to just taking. Normally it takes some age about yourself to acquire that kind of vision and wisdom. Then you realize at any given point, even when I retire, I'm going to have to retire and look at a high school senior and realize, man, what could I have done for him and his family that the next guy may or may not be able to do? These are the kinds of thoughts that are in the mind of someone like Nick Saban every day. I would just advise you, love Alabama, hate Alabama, learn as much as you can from it, because I don't think we've ever had something like this come through college football. We've had great coaches. We've had great leaders. There will be great coaches and leaders after Nick Saban. There will only be one greatest, and you're watching him in real time right now. All right, let's move on. Arizona State. Let me, let me pause and let me look off into the distance. Gather my thoughts. Gather my thoughts. Okay, here we go. I need to touch on Arizona State again, but as you've been made well aware, I have to give our mandatory disclaimer. Nothing I'm about to say is my personal judgment on this program. Nothing I'm about to say is my personal take on what was right or wrong, and nothing of what I'm about to say is my personal take on what should happen. It's simply what we're hearing, what we're seeing in media reports, and what I think will happen, and maybe what a lot of coaches and college administrative types behind the scenes want to see happen. But I think there's one area that we've sold a little bit short, and by we, I mean us on Lake Kick, when we've talked about this. There's one area, and I think it has to do with the impact, and I mean college football impact. Something like this, even though you may not think of Arizona State as a marquee tier one, tier two type program, and they're not right now, there is still a big enough footprint there, and they still have a big enough footprint in the college football sphere that this could cause a pretty sizable ripple effect. So I'm going to circle back around to that. But before the whole talk of impact, there is something new that came out from the last time you and I spoke to each other. And I don't know if you caught it. Maybe if you're paying attention to this thing and you're checking every morning across the uh, Internet with a magnifying glass, maybe you did see it. But I bet most of you didn't. But that's okay. That's why we're here. That's why they uh, just, just have us do this and nothing else. So it did not make waves, but I think it should. I think we have a quote graphic for it. I'm going to read it off my screen here because it's pretty lengthy. Well, it's not that lengthy. It's not like you need to go get a snack and come back and I'll be done. But this was from The Athletic. 
This is reported by Doug Haller and Bruce Feldman. They've been covering this for The Athletic. Uh, Pete Thamel over at Yahoo Sports has done a great job, too. So I'm going to read it for you if you're listening on podcast. Gene Boyd, that's a deputy athletics director who oversees the Arizona State football program. This is an allegation. Was made aware of potential recruiting violations during the winter. A former athletic department staff member told The Athletic. The staffer did not know whether Boyd investigated the info or kept it to himself. Reached by a reporter Thursday night, Boyd started a brief conversation by saying he could not comment on anything because of the NCAA's ongoing investigation, told of the allegation that he was informed of potential violations. He repeated, I'm not going to comment on anything at all. Okay, so here's the rub here. You got a deputy AD, and every structure of an athletic department is different. Some of the ADs are there specifically to oversee football. Some of them are a lot more fundraising types, and then you have deputy or associate ADs with a specific focus on programs, and so that's probably more the structure you have here. So this guy, who you probably never heard of, Gene Boyd, he oversees football. The allegation is someone made him aware of it in the winter, and I guess the follow-up allegation is he didn't do anything about it. Now, that's not where the athletic report goes. Bruce Feldman and Doug Haller stop short, and they say, you know, we haven't been able to confirm that. When we presented the allegation to him, he said, can't tell you anything. I just want you to file this away. This could be a monumental deal, or it could be a nothing. Now we encapsulate it back into the context of what else is going on here. We got all these illegal visits, and allegedly, according to the Yahoo Sports report, we got documentation, we got receipts, we got travel, we've got documentation of group text messages between coaches, we got maybe surveillance camera footage of Herm Edwards himself with a recruit. Again, allegations at this point. Nothing's been put on our desk that proves any of this. But I think when you just heard what I read, it could be habitual at this point as it relates to the Arizona State story to say, oh, that's just another detail. Well, no, friends, it's not just another detail. Again, this is where I stop for a second time and say, I'm not giving you commentary on this. I'm telling you it will be a big deal if it's true, regardless of what you and I think about it. All right, now we continue. Hit the play button. There is a sound in college athletics. Not a word. There's a sound in college athletics. It's the scariest sound. It's the equivalent of you being four years old, hearing that sound in your closet. There's a monster in the closet. Well, the scariest sound in college athletics is Loy. Not Tom Loy. You're safe over at Irish Illustrated. I mean L-O-I. It's an acronym. It stands for Lack of Institutional Control. And this is the sort of thing that can get you in really hot water. And then it can start to affect not just football, but baseball, basketball. Now, I am going to tell you, here's where I will insert some commentary. I do not think that this is going to be some flaming asteroid that just takes out Tempe, Arizona, and everything that is Arizona State Athletics. But using history as our guide, that's what is potentially on the table when you have people that are in charge of, in this case, running the football operations, who are made aware of allegations very specific in nature, and they do nothing. You got a pretty tall task on your plate. You're paid a lot of money, you got a tall task, and that is you have to maintain control of your program and operate under the guidelines and bylaws as passed down by the NCAA. And if they catch you not doing that, and it's blatant, which according to these reports it is, then you got some trouble. But look, we're going to find out about that in due time. What about the impact? As we've seen it reported, if all of this or even most of fractions of it is true, then you're going to have a lot of coaching turnover there. But I think a lot of people assume that at this point. Not everyone, but I am among those that assume something eventually is going to happen in terms of coaching staff turnover there. But that's not the biggest impact. That just impacts Arizona State. Think about Pac-12 South this year. If this were an otherwise clean situation and they were riding into 2021, 
this was going to impact the Pac-12 South. It may still. We don't know how this turns out, but USC is the biggest beneficiary from this, I think, by 10 miles. Arizona State was going to be a big-time challenger. And I'm speaking in the past tense only because I think this will impact this upcoming season. What does it do in the Pac-12 South? Well, Utah's better for it. Uh, Certainly, USC is better for it. It takes what could have been a big hurdle away from several programs. You're looking at Arizona State's schedule right here on YouTube. They play at UCLA, at Utah, USC, at, at Washington. I mean, this was going to be one of the big games for Washington up north. They Washington, we're going to talk about this later in the show, they don't play USC this year. They don't play Utah. Their toughest game from the south was going to be this game against Arizona State. Who knows what that means now? We're going to talk about that later. And so that's one point of this. The second point is, what if this job comes open? Well, then we have to ask ourselves, is it a scenario A or a scenario B? Arizona State's thought of in the college football world as one of the more underrated coaching jobs in America. I agree with that. I thought after Texas A&M got themselves seriously about football and hired Jimbo Fisher, I viewed this as one of the biggest sleeping giant programs in college football. There's a lot of talent that leaves that area that could stay home. Ty Thompson, for example, is a kid at Oregon right now. Could play this year. Certainly is looked at as the quarterback of the future. They had to go to Arizona to get him. That kid didn't reside in, in Salem, Oregon. They had to go to Arizona to get him. And the point is, scenario A, let's say there is a coaching change there made, but the NCAA looks at it and says, all right, look, this was a strong, extenuating kind of circumstance. It was a weird one-off. We're not going to punish you athletic department-wide. Clean out the coaching staff. We'll be good. It could be that, or it could just be that everything goes up in smoke. But if it's scenario A, and you got a ready-made program sitting there, and you got a bunch of head coaches looking around saying, huh, uh, I'd like that. Well, that could be a game-changer. Someone calling me as they know good and well I'm on the air. And then the other part here is, what does it do to this roster? Because I think this is the most immediate point of interest. And a lot, of, a lot of staffs out here that still have a couple of scholarship spots open, let's say for this upcoming year, they're looking out there and they're saying, there's a reason that team was going to be ranked in the top 15 or top 20. They got some good players. I wish we could get an announcement sooner rather than later or get some indication about what's going to happen because we could use this guy, we could use that guy. I know that makes you feel the need to take a shower when you hear it, but that's the reality of college football right now. So there's a lot going on here. This is going to have impact. If you're, if you're an Illinois fan, if you're a Florida State fan, who knows? This could impact you in ways that you never thought imaginable. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is going to be a fun little segment we're about to do. I've been sitting on this one for a while. I got your input on it earlier today, and now I think we're ready to roll with it. If I were to ask you, which teams are college football's most dangerous teams this year? Which ones would you circle? Here are the caveats. We're not looking for teams ranked in the top six or seven. We're looking for teams that may be slightly off the playoff radar, but you feel either could make the playoff, or at the very least, they could wreck multiple playoff dreams. And I got one, two, three. I got four of them here, but I put this out on Twitter earlier today. Got great response. There was a ton of Ole Miss, a ton of Iowa State. I'm not talking about Iowa State because they're going to be ranked uh, well inside the top 10. Arkansas, 
was a strong mention. Texas, Miami, uh, these are all good. LSU was mentioned. I'm about to lead off with them. So there was a lot of good submission that I cannot get to. And this is not in any order except for the first one. But let's roll with this. LSU, to me, is the most dangerous team in college football this year, fitting these parameters, because there's no ceiling. This is the only program in America. If you really stop to think about it, the LSU Tigers, 2021, there's no ceiling because the roster's so good, they're literally capable of winning a national championship if everything were to go right. There's also a downside to that that we'll circle back to, but think about the quarterback situation. You've got two viable candidates there. This is a top-five roster. You don't need to worry a second about whether that organization is hungry. There is an entire organization that is less than two years removed from winning a title that has their backs against the wall feeling the need to reprove themselves to the world. That's a really good formula. You're looking at the schedule if you're watching on YouTube. It's a very winnable early portion of the schedule. So if you've got things to figure out, you got a couple of new coordinators, UCLA, McNeese, Central Michigan, at Mississippi State, Auburn, at Kentucky, those are as close to tune-ups that you would line up if you reside in the SEC as you can get. I'm not disrespecting those programs. I'm saying you're going to have to play someone. Those are the someones you want to play. You don't want Bama in week two. You don't want Florida in week three. You don't want to go to Ole Miss in week four or A&M in week five. You want those teams on the back half. There is no ceiling. If all things fall the way LSU wants them to, they can literally win a title. That's how good the roster is. But there's also no floor here. Because if they've got the same internal locker room rot that they had last year, if culturally things still suck down there, there's no floor. No amount of talent can save you. They could fall off the cliff, and you could just hear one collective (whistles) all year. And then you know what comes at the end, the great big splat. This is the most dangerous team in America this year. Now we move on. I wanted to clearly state that LSU was my top choice there. Uh, There's one more SEC team we're going to circle back to. So the rest of these, these are not in any order. I want to go about as far away from Baton Rouge as we can and still reside in college football. Washington is a very dangerous team this year. Let me just get you two simple questions. You may not think they're capable of winning a title. I don't think they're capable of winning a national title. But remember, we're talking about teams that could make the playoff or wreck other teams' playoff dreams here. I'm going to ask you two questions, very generic. What if I told you that there is a Power 5 team that could be favored in every one of their games? And then second part of that is absolutely no one's talking about them on the playoff radar, as far as I can tell. Would you be interested in that? Because my answer to both would be yes and yes, and it's Washington. You're looking at the schedule right now on screen if you're watching visually. That game, November 6th, week whatever it is, against Oregon. That's the only game right now, as it stands, that I would make them an underdog in. And it would be short. It would be about a field goal or less. And so who knows, by the time that gets here, that's several months away and several games away, Washington could be favored in that one. They're favored as it stands right now at Michigan in week two. We're going to talk more about that game later. Look at this. They don't play USC from the south. They don't play Utah from the south. Their other toughest games, Oregon, got them at home. Washington State, got them at home. Arizona State, got them at home. And so this is a dangerous team without the possibility of the offense making a pretty sizable leap forward. Because I'm not going to sit here and tell you I'm going to go as far as to suspect that they're going to make some quantum leap offensively. But it's not out of the realm of possibility totally that they could make a sizable jump in production offensively. If that were to happen, then they become an even more dangerous team. I think schedule dynamics alone and quality of roster and returning starter quality and experience returning quality makes them a dangerous team. 
probably the most dangerous in the Pac-12, again, not counting Oregon, because Oregon is already going to be respected, at least in the preseason, I think more than Washington will be. I think a lot more people, even if they're ranked similarly, and I haven't seen a lot of preseason ratings, and we haven't done ours yet. JP poll, not released yet. But even if you do try and window dress and say, oh, Washington and Oregon rank similarly, there's only one of those that you're taking serious as an actual playoff threat, and it's probably not Washington. So I'm going to label Washington as my most dangerous Pac-12 team, fitting those criteria. Then we got to go to the Big 12. I deliberated about whether I should include Texas here, but I think there's a more dangerous team than Texas. However, we don't have to leave the Lone Star State to find them. TCU. Another one of the most dangerous teams in college football. TCU is my most dangerous Big 12 team. Very sneaky here. I've got very little doubt that TCU is going to wreck at least one team season. I do not think that this is going to be a team that makes the playoff. It would, it would very much surprise me. It wouldn't be the biggest shock in the world. I don't think they're going to make the playoff. But I do think when you look at how their schedule sets up, this is schedule dynamic city. So think about what we have here you got all the veteran elements you would need. It's a veteran roster. They're not alone because of the super senior rule. There are a lot of veteran rosters out there. Well, this is one of them. But they have a veteran presence at quarterback, hopefully healthy this year, and equally as important, behind a veteran offensive line, finally. Of course, a veteran head coach. I think Patterson's in his 21st year, which I think gets kind of overlooked. You don't have many coaches two decades in anywhere. They are underrated at wide receiver this year, and they have Zach Evans at running back. The only questions surrounding Zachary Evans coming out of high school were off-field and from this point on his body, the neck up. There, no one questioned his wheels. No one questioned his burst or his cutting ability. Well, uh, he came on kind of strong at the end of last year. All those pieces are back is what I'm telling you. Now, I want you to listen to this. Close your eyes and just picture TCU. You know how pesky they've been in the past under normal circumstances. Now imagine you're Texas. You got Oklahoma two weeks from now. What has the Big 12 schedule maker decided to deal you the week before the Red River rivalry? Shootout, excuse me. A trip to TCU. So TCU gets Texas the week before Red River. It gets better. Then if you're the Oklahoma Sooners and you come out of Red River, who does the Big 12 schedule dealer have you facing the next week? TCU gets Oklahoma the week after Red River. And I'm still not done. They also play at Iowa State to end the year. It is a Thursday or Friday game. Guess who Iowa State plays the week before that? OU. Yeah. So in summary, TCU plays Texas right before they play OU. TCU plays OU right after they play Texas. And TCU plays Iowa State right after Iowa State's played Oklahoma. And by the way, probably one of the more underrated offensive rosters in America this year as it relates to expectation. So that's all we have going for us for TCU right now. Parker, you're welcome, buddy. And last but not least, in fact, I gave strong consideration to making this team the most dangerous. So it was actually a tie. It was almost a tie between a couple of SEC West teams. Ole Miss. Oh, boy. So let me say this. Let me let it simmer for just a second because I had some pushback on this the other day. I'll address that in a second. Ole Miss, one of the most dangerous teams in college football. Let me give you one question that could just totally turn the playoff picture on its ear this year. And it's the answer to this question. What if Ole Miss is average defensively this year? They don't have to be great. They don't have to be good. They were abysmal last year. They gave up a little over 38 points per game defensively. They were ranked 118 or 119. If they were to give me production defensively in the 50 to 60 range nationally, this is a playoff contender, not a fringe top 20. You didn't misunderstand me. 
If Ole Miss gets average comparative defensive production this year, that's a playoff contender. The difference is Lane Kiffin showing up with his offense knowing, man, we got to score 40 to have a shot today, versus him showing up saying, four touchdowns, 30 points, that could get it done today. That makes the difference in multiple wins for them this year. I said something the other week. A lot of you laughed at it. I'm dead serious about it. I know coaches didn't laugh at it. I told you teams in the SEC get very uncomfortable when they see Ole Miss on the schedule. They get a lot more uncomfortable when they see Ole Miss than when they see some other teams that you may have higher expectations for any given year. Because with Lane Kiffin Park there, and arguably, I don't even argue this, going into the season, the top quarterback in the conference, easily the most proven quarterback, I would say, in the conference, all the other offensive weaponry and very much a retooled and, they hope, an overhauled defense, this is a team you're going to see in a lot of preseason rankings in like the 15 to 25 range that has a legitimate shot, if they have average defensive play, to be a playoff contender. Because they have all the other parts you want. The explosiveness, offensively, they have it. The caddick quarterback you need, the skill, the play calling and everything, they have all that. It's just that no one thinks they can stop molasses in December defensively, and that's what keeps them on the periphery, and that's what just makes them a threat to knock someone else off as opposed to an actual contender themselves. There's going to be a lot of focus on Bama, as they should be. There's going to be a lot of focus on a and as there should be. If you came to me and you said, Josh, I think I'm going to make Ole Miss my number two team in the West. I would say, I'm interested. I'm intrigued. I could easily see the argument. Go on and lay it out for me. And at that point, we would have a strong conversation. Uh, If you think that would be shocking, let me put it this way. If you think Ole Miss beating Alabama this year would be shocking, I don't know what sport you've been watching. even, Even with Alabama, as great as Alabama is, if you think that team with Lane Kiffin and an average defense would be shocking if they started beating folks. I don't know what you're watching. It wouldn't shock me at all. I'll tell you that. So what did we go? We went LSU, Washington, TCU, Ole Miss. Look, if you want to throw Arkansas in there, have at it. Miami, absolutely. Texas gave strong consideration there. Oklahoma State, I started to roll with them. So yes, there are many more ways we could go. I just didn't want it to be a 25-minute segment. We did one of those the other day. I didn't want to do another one. All right, let's wrap it up with this. So I'm going to go back out to the West Coast. I told you the other day I was going to leave it in your hands. You let me know if you want this. We've been getting great traction on our swing game segments, and we've done them for the SEC, Big Ten. I think we've done them for all the Power Five conferences now. And so I said, if you want it for the Pac-12, let me know. And overwhelmingly, kind of surprised me, actually, the degree to which you overwhelmingly said, yes, we want it. So here we go. Pac-12 swing games, you asked for them, we are going to answer here. The swing game is not always your biggest game. The swing game is the one we circle, and we think that will, for better or for worse, determine how your season ended up playing out. Let's start with Oregon. You give me Washington State at Oregon. This is all the way down the road in week 11. We normally don't go that deep in the season for a swing game, but there are reasons here. This is as close as Oregon will have been in several years to being viewed as a viable playoff contender. Now, they've been a playoff contender in the past. They've had the preseason ranking. Top to bottom, this team's as good as they've had in quite a while, and it's as good a shot, therefore, as they've had in quite a while. The Pac-12 North game to circle is the one you're looking at right now on your screen if you're watching. It's November 6th. It's at Washington, but that's not the swing game. The swing game's the next week when Washington State comes into Eugene, and that is November 13th, and that's Washington State having a bye week right before that game. So either way, Regardless of how that game at Washington plays out, 
it's going to be a knife fight, I think, the following week. They could, they being Oregon, they could either be in do or die, back against the wall mode, or they could be in pole position and vying for maybe a trip to the Pac-12 championship game, but trying to keep playoff hopes alive too. And that game, I think, will be a huge swing because look at what they've got the next week. That thing is sandwiched right between trips to Washington and Utah. Not ideal. Moving on. USC, let's go down to L.A., I picked Utah at USC as the swing game for the Trojans. Now, this is one of those examples where your biggest game is also your swing game. USC has to win the Pac-12 South this year. Everything has fallen their way. The schedule's fallen their way. Their biggest challenger, as many saw it, is dealing with NCAA investigation right now. And they're USC. So they should be the favorite every year to win this division. They got to win this thing, man. If they don't, independent of what the record ends up being, you know what, I'm not going to call for anyone's job in in, uh, June. They need to win the Pac-12, and uh, Pac-12 South at the very least. This game, this is the toughest schedule spot, and I think it's the toughest game overall, aside from the Notre Dame game. Utah at USC in week six. This is Southern Cal's sixth game in a row, schedule dynamic alert, whereas Utah has a bye the week before this. So it's not the best of times to draw your toughest of competition. And remember, in the SEC, or maybe even the Big Ten, if you're looking at it, you know, if you're Ohio State or Bama, I got some wiggle room. I can afford to lose a game. I'll just make up for it. I'll have strong opponents on the back end. I'll have a conference championship game. You don't have that wiggle room in the Pac-12. The perception of the conference is such that you have to be perfect or as close to perfect as it gets, which means you can't be losing games like this. It's going to be tough. you got to suck it up. you got to win it. So I'm going to take the Utah game for USC. Now, as for Washington, I'm not going to go with a conference game at all. The Washington Huskies, as I said earlier in the show, could very well be favored in every game they play. There are two games in question. The first one's the one we're about to talk about, at Michigan in Week 2. The other one is later on down the road against Oregon. And these are games that could be dogs in, they could be a favorite in. As of right now, they are a favorite in week two. And this is the swing game to me. Washington at Michigan, pretty rare matchup here. Week two, that's the swing game. It's an out-of-conference game, obviously. If Washington comes into the big house and wins, I can't overstate enough what it would do for perception. This whole week two slate for the Pac-12 has Washington going to Michigan. It's got Oregon going to USC. There are some other notable games. I don't have the helmet grid schedule in front of me right now. But it could either make or break the Pac-12. Unfair, though that may sound, it could do it that early in the season, again, given the vulnerable perception of that conference. But this Week 2 game, Washington at Michigan, think about this. If they go in there and win, well, obviously they've won a really big game. They've won one of their toughest games. You see they have several winnable games after that. And so it could set them up for a nice little run to get into that stretch where they end up playing Oregon and Arizona State towards the end of the year. But if they lose it, again, there's no wiggle room in the Pac-12. And so if they lose against Michigan, you and I both know what the perception will be. You'll probably share this perception. You'll probably say, you know what? I don't think all that too terribly highly of Michigan right now. And Washington couldn't even go in there and beat them. And so whatever they go back out west and do the rest of the year, I'm going to have that in the back of my mind. You couldn't even beat Michigan. How am I supposed to take you seriously as a playoff contender? And that's what's on the line. That's why that's a swing game in week two. It's big for Washington. But listen, if I were an Oregon fan, I'd be pulling for the Huskies in that game. If I were a Southern Cal fan, I'd be pulling for the Huskies in that game. Uh, They are representing more than just themselves in that game. Again, you don't have to think that way if you're in some other conferences. 
you do have to think that way right now if you're the Pac-12. What about Utah? Utah, bona fide contender. They are going to be some folks' preseason Pac-12 South pick. I'm taking Arizona State at Utah in Week 7 as the biggest swing game for the Utes. It's a big swing moment, really. It's not just swing game. It's a big swing moment for them because it's one of the hardest games to forecast. If you're looking on the screen right now, I've said that like 15 times tonight, look at where this game is. It's in Week 7. It's Arizona State. So they've got at USC before that. They've still got Oregon down the road. But what is Arizona State right now? Arizona State could be a shell of themselves, or they could have gotten surprising good news, or no news being good news, and they could be fully the team we all expected them to be in preseason magazine season. And if that's the case, this is a tough spot to draw them, coming off that USC game. That is Super Bowl territory for Utah. That game at USC, October 9th, that's Super Bowl territory. Well, as is the case usually, when we talk about a Super Bowl in college football, it's and... Who do they play the next week? Well, let's check who they play the next week. Well, you got Arizona State. Well, that's not the easiest draw in the world. The reason it's a hard forecast is because it may end up being such that you're favored by three touchdowns because Arizona State has completely cratered, or maybe they'll be legitimate. So you give me that game, Arizona State at Utah. That's in week seven. And the last one I wanted to touch on out west, UCLA has got a tougher schedule in the south than most of their other Pac-12 South brethren. They've got a game. It's going to be off the radar. This is not going to be a national game, but I think it's one of a very, very, it's going to be interesting to me only because of the dynamics. It is UCLA at Arizona. It's week six. Think about how we, how we kind of, we reason all this in our minds. Look at the opening to this schedule. A lot of you would say their toughest game is for them in week two. The rest of the country will call September 4th, week one, but UCLA has scheduled Hawaii in August. And so they will, I think, be 1-0. Then they've got a little stretch here. They play LSU. They will be less than a touchdown underdog in that game. We told you that long before it came out. They'll be favored against Fresno. They'll be favored at Stanford. And then you got Arizona State there, which will be around to pick them as we see it right now. And so you've got a chance there. It wouldn't be the wildest of scenarios if UCLA were to start 1-0, 2-0, 3-0, 4-0, 5-0, or 4-1 even would be a very good start. And then they go to Arizona. Now, I don't think if you're looking at the screen, it takes a rocket scientist to figure out why this would be a swing game. It's not because we expect a ton from Jed Fish in Arizona. And five bucks if you could name the new Arizona head coach before we just said his name. Seriously, you deserve it. It's not that we expect a whole lot out of them in year one. It's what happens if Chip Kelly and UCLA lose that game. Do you see the next three opponents on that schedule? You go into a tailspin really quickly because you lose at Arizona. They send you right back out on the road to Washington. And then you get to come home and play Oregon. And then you get to go back out on the road and play Utah. And then Colorado just feasts on whatever is left on the carcass at that point. I'm not guaranteeing that. I'm just saying you and I both know that's the way that could very well play out. So these are some really interesting swing games. I know some of you don't get into Pac-12 football. I would encourage you, being that this will be a renaissance here and all, I would encourage you to watch this. A lot of you gamble on this. A lot of you play day-to-day fantasy and week-to-week fantasy, and maybe you have a different kind of rooting interest, and then some of you are fans of Pac-12 programs. I think college football is the best when it matters nationwide. Now, you and I may wholeheartedly differ on our strategy on how to make that happen. You're an expand the playoff type. I am a make better hires type, including commissioner. So he's been there about 15 minutes. We'll see how much that pays off. 
But these are very intriguing. And what I love to do in December is I love to look back on our swing games and I love to see how right we were. How impactful were these swing games? Or do we look back on it and say, oh, Utah, as it turns out, they skull drug Arizona State 52-3. to Not really a swing game at all. All that swung was the door and then Arizona State got tossed out of it. But that's fun to watch. All right, that's our show tonight. Thank you for watching. A reminder, our big calls to action right now to keep the show free is follow the social accounts at Late Kick Josh and make sure we are subscribing to the YouTube channel, liking the videos, and leaving five-star reviews on the podcast. And Colin, I think that's about it. You don't even have to Venmo us any money. That's all we're asking for. Now, if you want to, we'll have a separate conversation. And you know what? Let me put this bird in your ear as we close it, too. Uh, This is informal. This is, uh, as far as I can tell, it's not company-sanctioned yet. Just want to put it out there. You have my contact information. You see it at the bottom of the screen, joshpate706 at gmail.com. Let's say you're out there, and you're working for a fairly sizable, let's call it a regional or a national company, and you've got some discretionary income in that advertising budget of yours, and you look at this show And I know I have this thermos on set, but I can promise you the college football playoff is not sponsoring this show. And if you look at this wall behind me and you look at this monitor and you look at that logo and you look at that lower third, look how clean it is. There's no company name. There's no advertising. It doesn't have to be permanent. Now, we're not going to go into partnership with something that we don't endorse. For instance, I won't endorse alcohol on the show because I don't drink. However, I've downed a Mountain Dew or two in my time. I've eaten at a ton of restaurants. I've driven a ton of cars. And so I know you guys are out there. Many of you have asked me about it before. I had to tell you no in the past. All I'm saying is things may be changing. We're not going to make this thing look like the side of a NASCAR either. But if we find one or two major advertising partners that want to get on board and have millions of impressions per week during the fall with a very concentrated audience of, you guessed it, hardcore college football fans, hit me up. I'll put you in touch with the right people, and we'll get the ball rolling on that. That's fair. And that's it. And that's all. For Director Emeritus Colin, Noah, and our entire crew in Fort Lauderdale, here is me being the first to wish you a happy early start to your week. We'll see you back here Thursday night. God bless.